This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Yes, uh, exploring non-dual mindfulness, that's a big subject. And we're uh, definitely uh, just a little dewdrop of the ocean here tonight on that. Um, I'd like to read a little passage from an article uh, that came out just about a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago or so, uh, in the journal, of, uh, the, the journal of the American Academy of Religion. I'll circle back to this uh, later uh, at the very end of the talk. Uh, it's by C.W. Huntington. Uh, he's actually a professor of, of uh, Buddhist studies, but his, even though this article is on the Theravada, uh, in Vipassana, he's actually more of a professor of, of Madhyamaka, Indo-Tibetan studies. So that's really besides the point here. So let me just read this little story. <laughs> and uh, he says, back in the mid-1980s, I did a month-long Buddhist meditation retreat at a temple in Bodh Gaya, India. The retreat was led by a Westerner who had trained in Thailand as a Theravada monk. And as in custom... As is the custom in such retreats, we maintained noble silence except for an hour-long Dharma talk the instructor delivered each evening. The talk was followed by questions from the meditators. One evening, someone asked the teacher if he was enlightened. It was the kind of intimate, personal question that many Westerners are dying to ask, but some unspoken rule of Buddhist etiquette, no one dares. I was eager to hear his answer, and here's what he said. I have never been enlightened, I am not enlightened, and I never will be enlightened. As I recall, he did not explain his response, rather, simply let it reverberate in the stillness of the great stone hall. I'll come back to this towards the end of the talk. Um, So I think what's uh, interesting about our time, our times here, is that we have the advantage, unlike uh, pre-modern times when uh, different Buddhist traditions were quite isolated geographically. Uh, So they didn't benefit from hearing from each other's teachings. So I know that this Sangha is uh, insight meditation, kind of drawing more directly from the Theravada and Pali canon traditions. So I'm going to... uh, talk a little bit about a 13th century uh, Zen master, uh, Zen master Dogen. I'd like to start with him because uh, I uh, fell in love with Dogen about 10 or 12 years ago, and uh, uh, I still am uh, deeply in love with his teaching and his writings. And, uh, but um, he offers uh, something quite unique uh, that I think uh, you will appreciate. And I think maybe a more modern way of thinking about what he's trying to say is that uh, there's some original wholeness about uh, our true nature. Is, uh, there's some kind of deep original wholeness within us, and within the whole universe for that matter, not just within us. But, um, and he, he's trying to say that that is the actual fundamental reality of what's true, what's real, is this fundamental wholeness. However, because of our dualistic thinking, we suffer the gravity, the gravity of our sense of self, which 
creates the sense of separation from this, or this alleged separation from this sense of original wholeness. So the, the phrase is very popular now, seeing things as they truly are. So seeing things as they truly are is to see and embody and actualize this original wholeness. Um, so I think that's where we can start with Dogen. And uh, what's nice about Dogen is where he starts is where he ends. And I'll get to what I mean by that. Um, it's very difficult to communicate. And Dogen uh, made a point of playing with words, even in, in the Japanese of his time. Uh, very poetic, and he, he, played on, he played on meanings and words. Uh, because the, we can't really communicate uh, these insights in language. It's very dis- difficult because language itself assumes the subject and object and all this kind of dualistic way of communicating. Um, so in one of his, uh, in one of his uh, uh, essays, <clears throat> it was called The Point of Zazen and Zazen Meditation, right? Point of Zazen. There was a monk that was sitting steadfastly, and another monk asked him, uh, what are you doing? What are you, what are you thinking when you're sitting? And he says, well, I think not thinking. The master said, I think not thinking. And the monk says, well, how do you think not thinking? He says, beyond thinking. Now, I, 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 I'd like to mull over this idea of beyond thinking because I think it could be misinterpreted. It's certainly not ordinary thinking, and it's certainly not ordinary not thinking because a lot of times we think meditation is trying to suppress thinking. But Dogen was a very critical thinker, extremely incisive and critical it's not giving up one's critical intelligence. It's applying one's critical intelligence. And I think that's often sort of, uh, Zen has gotten a bad rap as being anti-intellectual, in the, in, at least in the West, uh, for many other reasons I want to go into. But, um, and Dogen was prolific in terms of his scholarly, uh, not, well, output in terms of his writing. So for a tradition that says it's beyond words and letters, he was... <laughs> producing lots of words and letters over his lifetime. So it's kind of a contradiction in a way. Um, But I think what uh, we can take from that is uh, that it's somehow it's leaping beyond dualistic thinking. I think that that's sort of what's hidden in that statement, is leaping beyond dualistic thinking is sort of the fundamental point. And... This is where uh, Dogen is, is very radical because he doesn't see that meditation is a way to attain enlightenment. Now that may sound pretty strange, but he sees no distance between the act and practice of meditation and the embodiment of awakening. And that's the non-dual radical uh, teaching of Dogen. There's no distance between the desire for enlightenment, the meditation process, and the actual awakening. There's no duality between any of those. So that from the first moment of sitting, there's no bridge needed. Uh, and he characterizes this as practice hyphen realization. That's the way he characterizes it. Practice hyphen realization 
or realization hyphen practice. Um, so practice uh, is quite radical, isn't it? It's, uh, there's no gap. I mean, the way to think about it from maybe a Theravada point of view is that from, for Dogen's perspective, there's no gap between nirvana and where you are right now. No gap. And so all moments are an embodiment, an expression of this original wholeness. There's nothing lacking. If you see it from that perspective, there's nothing lacking. So in a way, practice is not a means to an end. It's not goal-oriented. And I, I, I kind of want to elaborate on that a little bit later about uh, how we can uh, kind of uh, use maybe some of these uh, inspiring uh, teachings to uh, uh, quicken our ability to give up the sense of, uh, that the self has to be the agent of what it's doing, not only in meditation, but also in, in ordinary life. So he kind of dispenses with the idea of meditation is a method or a means to an end, or a technique for concentration, or a technique for self-improvement. He dispenses with that. Instead, he says that uh, sitting, zazen in, in Japanese, Meditation is a dharma gate of enjoyment and ease, is the way he puts it. Now, in the Indian Indo-Tibetan tradition, you might say that, that it's the dharma gate of bliss. It's one way of maybe thinking of it from a different tradition. Um, so what's interesting is that practice for, for Dogen <coughs> is an intimate expression of realization. So we don't sit in order to become enlightened. We sit as an expression of enlightenment. And there's the sense of undividedness. And if you think of wholeness, wholeness, I, I, I don't know if you remember David Bohm, this great uh, quantum physicist who got into philosophical uh, inquiry. And um, he said, well, if you look at the number, the, uh, the idea of an integer, and you think of integrity, or if you think of uh, integral, one over one equals one. There's nothing, if you keep dividing, it's still one. So in a sense, he's saying there's some, there's some sense of undividedness between the practice and, and the actual uh, expression of enlightenment. So if all beings are already whole from the beginning, then why do we practice? And that was something that really... Uh, got under Dogen's skin in those days because there was a school of thought in his time where people were kind of espousing this idea but they were acting like jerks. <laughs> and he, I want to go into the whole history of that but let's come back to the idea that why do we practice? Well, we practice because we don't know yet who we truly are. But we sense there's something more. There's a sense, there's an irrepressible sense of this original wholeness. It, 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 it is irrepressible. And because we're suffering, it, it, we aspire to know it. So Dogen said, wisdom is seeking wisdom. Wholeness is seeking wholeness. And to me, that is just so inspiring to take that in. Um, so it's a radical 
uh, non-dual vision, you could say, of nirvana. It's our non-dual vision of nirvana. No difference between nirvana and samsara. And so when you start talking that sort of language, you're getting more into the Mahayana. Uh, so our true nature, we could actually think we're made of nirvana. We're made of it. We are, we're vibrating with nirvana. Uh, it's the nature of, our, of who we are. Uh, it's wholeness, bliss. But if we think it's a state, if we think it's somewhere else, and then it becomes relative. It's not absolute. It's not, it's, it becomes some altered state that we're seeking somewhere else. It's unreliable at that point. Um, so we don't enter it. We don't enter it as a self. We discover it. It's almost like uncovering rather than going to it. So if the Buddha was here, uh, and, and of course he would be embodying nirvana and awakening if he was here, and, uh, but he would see us all as inseparable from nirvana. He would, he would see us all as inseparable. Um, so rather than experiencing the totality of nirvana, and I want to use some different words here coming back to the, the meditation we started out with, Rather than experiencing the totality of space and time, instead we experience our small, separate self. Rather than experiencing the totality of space and time, and you could say knowledge, instead we identify with our self as being the real, real, what's really real. And so... In a way, uh, it's too much to handle. It's, it's too much. We, we almost like it's overwhelming, so we consolidate into a boundary to which we then identify with. Me, my, and mine, right? Me, myself, mine, ownership. So Nargajuna, who is uh, a great Buddhist uh, master and known as the pioneer of Manyamaka philosophy, he said, look, if, if you think nirvana is elsewhere... It's not the ultimate reality, right? It becomes a state, a boundary. It becomes a boundary. Um, and I, I'll keep coming back to that theme. So coming back to this idea of original wholeness, it's pretty radical, but we, come of, we, we have a heritage, actually, uh, that's slightly different, not slightly, but dramatically different, you could say, from the Buddhist uh, way of thinking, is... Uh, we come more from a, uh, a culture of original, original being originally flawed. Or uh, if you want to use the word sin, uh, original sin. Or, but the way to think about that then is that we're, we're not at one with oneness. We're somehow at a distance from it, right? And, and so we're not at one with the sense of wholeness. So we live at a distance we, we think there's a distance from what awakening is or what enlightenment is. We think that there's, there's, there's a time gap. It's in the future. I have to do X, Y, and Z, and then I will get it. I will, it's over there, somewhere else. So we live at a distance. And um, in a way, you could say that the, there's, you know, 
different visions that of this original sin. I don't want to dwell on that too much, but it's more like it's radically other. It's somewhere else. It's, it's uh, the transcendent is somewhere way beyond, you know. And uh, so moder- modernity, you know, our, our culture, uh, we live at a distance not only from the sense of wholeness, but even from ourselves. Uh, we, we live at a distance even from ourselves. We're divided within ourselves, let alone from this original wholeness, right? We have a lot of inner conflicts and tensions and so forth. So we're strange. We're a strange culture. We feel alienated. We feel there's a deep sense of lack, a pervasive sense of anxiety, separation, uh, the malaise of, uh, of our culture. And this, this is you know, sort of amplified by, uh, you could say, late capitalism in terms of the sense of the, everyone is sort of a separate individual, out for themselves, rugged individualism. Uh, and um, so Dogen takes us in a different direction. Um, his vision is one of all-inclusiveness, kind of this intimate immediacy is a good way of putting it, an intimate immediacy. The wholeness is intimately, immediately available. Wholeness is inseparable. And in one way they, they say that in Zen, it's not one and not two. Nothing's left out. There's no gap. And uh, perhaps I'll read you just a few quotes from Dogen to give you a sense of uh, his play on language. And, um, to carry the self forward and illuminate myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and illuminate the self is awakening. Those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. Those who are greatly deluded about realization are sentient beings. Further, there are those who continue realizing beyond realization, who are in delusion throughout delusion. When Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they do not necessarily notice that they are Buddhas. However, they are actualized Buddhas who go on actualizing Buddha. Here's another one. When you first seek Dharma, you imagine you are far away from its environs. At the moment when Dharma is correctly transmitted, you are immediately your original self. When you ride in a boat and watch the shore, you might assume that the shore is moving. But when you keep your eyes closed closely on the boat, you can see that the boat moves. Similarly, if you examine myriad things with a confused body and mind, you might suppose that your mind and nature are permanent. When you practice intimately and return to where you are, it will be clear that nothing at all has an unchanging self. I'll read one more from, from this is from the uh, Actualizing the Fundamental Point from Genjo Kohn. Uh, Enlightenment is like the moon reflected in, uh, on the water. The moon does not get wet, nor is the water broken. Although its light is wide and great, the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch wide. The whole moon and the entire sky are reflected in dewdrops on the grass or even in one drop of water. Enlightenment does not divide you, just as the moon does not break the water. You cannot hinder enlightenment. 
just as a drop of water does not hinder the moon in the sky. The depth of the drop is the height of the moon. Each reflection, however long or short its duration, manifests the vastness of the dewdrop and realizes the limitless of the moonlight in the sky. So, that's beautiful, beautiful. He's very poetic, as you can see. <laughs> um, so I'll try to, uh, boy, yeah, a lot to, to dive into here. <laughs> but um, I think one of the things that we have to appreciate with Dogen, and this is one of his most, I would think, uh, greatest contributions, uh, because if there is no sense of gap, there's no gap between what he's talking about in terms of awakening, original wholeness, and where we are now, that brings up a kind of a different way of viewing time. Because if we think that awakening is somewhere off, somewhere else, that presupposes a particular way of thinking about time. And it's usually a linear way of thinking about time. Dogen turns out all upside down. He doesn't deny the fact that we have the appearance of linear time. We need linear time to operate as human beings in a conventional relative world. But his way of of, uh, giving us a new vision of time is just one of the most, uh, I would say, most amazing contributions. And it's all in one short essay that he wrote, and it's called Uji, and it's translated many different ways. Sometimes it's translated as being time or time being or it's translated as time present or it's translated as uh, existence time. It depends on the different translators. So for a while I was just doing nothing but collecting all these different translations and comparing them and getting a little subtle nuance off of different ones when you kind of compare them, you know. And you get to like certain ones over others, you know. But um, I think what's really interesting, uh, and it'll be way too difficult to get into this essay tonight, but just to touch on it a little bit, because I want to segue from that to uh, where we started tonight. Um, But I think the key thing to take away here is that this is a new vision of time. And, and for that matter, a new vision of reality. And in the Eightfold noble, noble Path, the very first factor is right view, or noble view. Um, but vision is such an expansive word. And, and um, I think that uh, if we... Uh, if we... Um, well, let me just read... I'll just read a few passages from Uji. It's the best way to do it. So you get a sense of it. So um, you'll have to bear with me here because his language is not easy. Sometimes his phrasings are not easy. but. But until we study the Buddhist view, it is normal to think that time present or time being means at one particular time we become angry at another particular time, we become a Buddha. We imagine events as part of a journey, as though we were crossing a river or walking over a mountain pass. And although we feel fairly sure that the mountain pass or the river 
are still present back there where we crossed them, we have already passed them and moved on to be illuminated by the present, leaving them behind in the far distance. But this is not the only way to think about it. So what he's saying there in the first passage is that our normal sense of time is sort of spatially laid out in a linear fashion. This is not the only way to think about it. At the time we are crossing the mountain pass or crossing the river, we are present there, and so time is present there. Time cannot elude the present. Accepting that time does not appear and disappear, the time when we are crossing the mountain pass is also a real-time present. And even if time were to appear and disappear, the time, the time when time is actually present is also time present. Then how can the time when we are crossing the mountain pass or crossing the river not be swallowed up in the time when we are illuminated by the light of the present? How can we say that the time when we are crossing the mountain pass or crossing the river does not spew out present brightness? Um, so I think one of the ways to try to, to, to decipher this is that he's saying that time and existence are inseparable. Time and existence are inseparable. It's not like we're in time. We're not like objects in time, right, moving along. Um, and then he, he challenges our sense of time as flowing or passing away. He says, seeing time simply as flowing away is not enough. Thinking that only the property of time has is the ability to flow is not enough. If we think of time only as flowing away, then there must be gaps between the instants of time present as they pass. Ordinary people only see time as something that flows away. And this is why they do not experience time present or time being and have not heard it explained. In actual fact, all the things in the whole universe are time presence. So that's a little, a lot to take in. Uh, it's kind of overwhelming, these passages, if you go through them <laughs> one by one. It takes a while, to, many years, to mull them over and let them seep in. But um, I think that this is a good point, perhaps, then, to because that was a 13th century Zen master from Japan. And now we can look at a contemporary uh, teacher, Tarthang Tuku, uh, a Tibetan Lama, obviously. Uh, but what's interesting about the, the book that I read from, Time, Space, and Knowledge, the subtitle is A New Vision of Reality. And uh, he wrote this book uh, probably in the mid-70s, but it came out in 1977. Oral transcriptions with Steve Tainer, who was his translator at the time. It's 3,000 pages of manuscripts and was kind of whittled down to 270 pages. Uh, but what's really interesting, he says, this is not a Buddhist text. This is a secular teaching for the West that is my gift to the West. Because he, he, he was working with Westerners, and he came here in 1968, and he actually stopped teaching publicly in 1979. He's moved up to Odeon up in Sonoma County and shifted his whole uh, life purpose to, to uh, preserving uh, Tibetan culture and to rare Tibetan texts through uh, publications and, and sending texts back to uh, India and Tibet and all the Tibetan diaspora uh, countries. So even though he was trained, I mean, he's a very traditional Tibetan lama, there's not uh, really one 
word in there that comes from any kind of Buddhist uh, terminology. And I think that's what's really, really fascinating is that he said, I wrote this book because it resonates what, with the basic facets of our experience. If you really get down to what's really basic to our experience, it's, it's the sense that we're, we're in space, we're experiencing time, and we have knowledge or consciousness. Uh, and so this is a, a way to actually critically inquire into how perhaps our ordinary sense of knowing space and time may be limiting us in terms of our potential. And um, so, yeah, in one of his other books, uh, by the way, this is the first book. There were six other books after this that are sequels, so it's about 1,500 pages uh, that are part of this, this vision. And uh, what's interesting is that one of his other books, his subtitle is the liberation of the modern mind. So this is definitely targeted to us as, as modern, uh, modern people, not uh, to 8th century Tibet or 12th century or 13th century Japan. Um, so coming back to that, that word critical, critical intelligence, critical inquiry, um, is uh, very much part of this, this vision. It's all about questioning our presuppositions, our lived presuppositions about our sense of self and how it's embodied in space, how it's active in time, how it knows. Is the self really the only uh, position that can know reality? Because remember the exercise that we did, the meditation that we did starting out, it asked you to let go of the sense of your special status as the observer or knower. Maybe there's knowingness or consciousness can operate perhaps without the limitations of our habitual sense of self. And so there's a lot of interesting uh, aspects to this vision in terms of creativity as well. Um, I want to come back though to the theme of tonight which is non-dual mindfulness. Because what I find from this vision is another very compatible resonance with Dogen in the sense that he uses language in here like we've, there's never having strayed. Never having strayed from what? From original wholeness. Okay. Uh, and he's saying that the straying tendency, the sense of alienation is this drawing apart. It's a sense of drawing apart where then we feel lack. We, feel, uh, we don't sen- feel a sense of fulfillment in our ordinary sense of how we experience lived time. Or we don't feel a sense of freedom in the sense of that uh, my boundaries are being uh, invaded, our sense of space, we have to protect ourselves. I'm separate from you, you know, you're somebody else over there, right? That country is, you know, over there and, you know, they're different from us and it's all sense of dividedness and that's the spatial sort of, you say, dukkha of, the dukkha of space, you know. Then we have the dukkha of time, which is a sense of that uh, where we are, what's happening, it's a sense of not, not feeling satisfied having to move. You have to move, we have got to kind of grasp and reach out, reach out. The sense of self has to reach out and somehow we're going to get something there by moving. 
So these are really powerful uh, ways of, of challenging, you could say, our lived embodiment and how space and time is embodied in our uh, consciousness, in the way we see, the way we hear, the way we dream. It's, it's a radical vision. So um, he makes a really interesting statement in the book here. I think that it's worth uh, elaborating on. I'll leave time for questions here. Uh, he says the self cannot understand and he uses the term great space and great time. These are sort of terms that he uses in the book to differentiate between our ordinary lived time, our sense of linear time, our sense of separateness and closed and chamber, you know, being a, you know, we think our mind is behind our eyes here somewhere. Uh, so he uses the terms great space and great time and great knowledge to kind of talk about uh, a different sense of, of uh, embodiment. He says, but the self cannot understand great space and time because it is precisely the embodiment of a lapse of such understanding. So, um, in a way, I don't know if you're, if you're resonating with that statement, but it's like the self is a uh, consolidating tendency. It's a consolidating tendency. I mean, we're still space and time and knowledge. We're still operating as spatial beings, temporal beings, beings with the, the capacity to know. So there's never a, uh, you could say, we're never separated from the deeper aspects of these dimensions, the, the facet, very facets of our humanity. We're never separated from the deeper potentials of space, time, and knowledge. Because we are space, time, and knowledge, but we're embodying it in such a way that it's limited. And so, um, so as a self, yeah, we know objects in space. We see objects in space. Right? But we think space is just some sort of empty container for objects that exist over there. Right? And so we know an infinite, infinity of knowings, infinity, uh, propancha, right? Propancha is conceptual proliferation. We know, 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 this, that, that, this, that, 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 that. And that, that in a way, that's, that's one way that space is so creative. It allows us to have these infinity of knowings. But on the other hand, it's very dualistic, that way of knowing. So going back to Dogen, he says, beyond thinking, right? It's not, it's not giving up thinking, but it's a different way of thinking, a different way of knowing that we can, uh, we can actualize. And so uh, non-dual mindfulness, to me, is a way to, to gain insight into our space-time nature, our true space-time nature. Because the limits that we experience and embody and live out are not insurmountable. They're not definitive. They're not definitive. Because original wholeness, the self is still within original wholeness. So there's no war on the self. There's no need to have a war on the ego. There's no need to get rid of the ego. There's no need to put it down. There's no need to suppress it. Um, but on the other hand, uh, uh, the self is suffering. The self is still suffering from these limits that it's enacting, okay? It's, it's enacting these limits um, because its vision is very narrow. It has a very narrow vision of its nature. So you could think of this as the aperture on a camera, 
like a focal setting on those cameras. It has focal, wide angle, narrow angle. So in a way, this practice or these practices are a way to opening up the focal setting. Um, and I'm going to read you a really quick story here, and maybe probably I'll come back to that last thing I said I was come back to, but I'll read you this little passage from the Time Space Knowledge book in terms of an allegory or story that perhaps will characterize what I've been saying. Okay. The self cannot understand great space or time because it is precisely the embodiment of a lapse of such understanding. The self appreciates and deals with the infinity of space only in the sense that it finds it possible to continue its ordinary knowing encounters indefinitely. It can know an infinity of data, but without getting any insight into its space-time nature or into the reason why that infinity of detail is available to it. So I'm going to skip to the story here. By gathering together some information about the inception of these formative patternings and presenting such information in a simple story, we can approximate the tale this knowingness could tell if it only had an audience. In response to our story, knowingness itself may then be stimulated to come to the fore and fill in the more subtle details. Using this knowingness, we can see how the self's ongoing tendency towards a fall occurs and also how it can be avoided. So, in our story, time stipulates that subject and object are on stage. But this does not mean very much yet, since they are just time like everything else. They are not in the exclusive foreground of that infinity. In fact, the play seems almost infinitely slow in getting started. But from another vantage point, it is already over. We will have to be content with a summary of the points of interest from both the view of the main characters and that of space, time, and knowledge perspective. At some point, the self declared that from that time hence, it was on its own, and quite a capable fellow, too. It looked around, viewing the objects within its domain, these appeared to be strewn out over various distances, near and far. The self moved about over this landscape, contacting objects and thinking many thoughts by way of sizing things up. Time worked miracles even in portraying even this much. And it seems there are several ways of describing its special effects. For instance, we might want to concentrate on the view of the main character, the self, played by time or by time at stagehand. Or we might be more interested in time itself as the player of the parts. According to this perspective of time, as a player of the parts, great time's infinity authorizes time to leave no trick untried. This authorization is expressed even by a drama in which a local resistance factor or dimming, dimming effect is alleged to shut out its infinite capacity. Such a drama is entirely celebra celebratory in nature, a testimony to time's patron, great space, in its infinite capacity for benign tolerance of limitations. According to the view enacted by the fictive self, such a limitation is in effect, but is unknown and unsuspected until later in the play. Maybe I'll stop there, because it's... it's goes on and on and on and on, but it's, uh, it's an interesting allegory. Um, 
So, speed up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think we'll end with um, coming back to that article and uh, uh, yeah, here it is. Yeah. So, he circles back as well in the article towards the end. And he says, this idea of Bodhi or Nirvana as an unchanging achievement is yet another misunderstanding rooted in unexamined assumptions. As we have seen, Vipassana has nothing to do with any achievement or accomplishment of the self. Rather, it's about ceasing to identify with all such concerns about the self and its constant obsession with gain and loss. Learning to see through the illusion of the self, as one does when cultivating Vipassana, means understanding the ultimate necessity for letting go of the whole project of accomplishing or achieving anything. Listen closely once again to my meditation teacher in Bodhgaya. I have never been enlightened, I am not enlightened, and I never will be enlightened. As the utter failure to apprehend a real self Nirvana, the unconditioned, is the discovery of a super-mundane dimension here and now in the world as it is. Eternity need not refer to the infinite extension of linear time. To put it in the simplest terms, where the self is, enlightenment or insight is not. So I'll leave it with that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.